stories of walking with Jesus, serving with love, and sharing with courage. Welcome to the PCOM Podcast. Welcome back to the PCOM Podcast. I am here in the office with Pastor Jackson and Pastor Daryl, who have already not been on their best behavior, so we will see how hey this there. podcast goes. Hey there. Good <laughs> uh, to be here. Like kids in a candy store. So one of the things we wanted to talk about today, and the reason we've got all, all three pastors here at the table, is that one of our strengths here at PCOM is the, the varied community that we have. We have folks who have come to know Jesus here for the first time. We have folks from all sorts of different church backgrounds who grew up in the church, the Catholic church, the Baptist church, the Episcopalian church, the Methodist church, non-denominational backgrounds. But there are some Presbyterian distinctives that are really helpful to understand since they affect how we worship together. For example, we say debts and debtors when we recite the Lord's Prayer together, but non-denominational churches usually say sins, and other mainline denominations like the Lutherans and the Catholics, they say trespasses. Uh, So what gives? I don't know the particular history on that, do you? I don't know either. (laughs) I just know that... We're off to a good start. uh, I I just know that they all mean pretty much the same thing, uh, which is that... uh, these are all ways to describe the ways in which we've sinned against God. So when we sin, we, uh, we make a debt to God that we owe, that we can't pay. Um, and sin describes the basic way that we break God's law. And trespass is a big fancy word for saying the exact same thing. And I would add to that that I think it is likely uh, a translation question from the Greek word. And as it uh, uh, develops a tradition over time, it tends to solidify. And so we Presbyterians um, have anchored ourselves around the word debts and debtors. We just have Um, to be different. We do. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) We're alone on our debt island, our debt debtor island. Yeah, but I would say that with, along with Daryl, that the nuance of the word uh, would allow us to say trespasses or sins. I think they're they're getting at the same idea. And all three of those words uh, inform each other. And so it's helpful it to have... It broadens the definition. Yeah, it broadens yeah. it and helps us to have all three of those things in mind when we say the Lord's Prayer, um, as opposed to just, um, you know, saying, well, we say debts and debtors, you know, why don't you? It's like, let's, uh, let's see how these things actually inform each other, because it really is a translation question. So there's a method to the madness, but that's also kind of one of those small potatoes things. It's a small potatoes thing, yeah. yeah. And yet people who come here from somewhere else, when we're doing the Lord's Prayer, you hear this trespasses as, you know, as they're trying to, as they're trying to catch up with, you know, debts. The multi-syllabic, and, right, right? Like right. to fit it in the tiny debts. Yeah, you hear this as they, and so they tend to stand out. I always try at funerals when we say the Lord's Prayer to give a little, I know a lot of you are from different churches, so just so you know, you know, say whatever you like, but we will say debts, because otherwise there is that like, and then there's a little giggle, you know, and it's, yeah, what's happening? So that's, that's kind of a small potatoes question, but I brought you guys here to talk about some bigger questions, the question of the sacraments. We celebrate two sacraments in the Presbyterian Church, and it brings up some important questions. First of all, what in the world is a sacrament? So a, a couple of things here uh, would be helpful that within the, the Christian church as a whole, uh, there are 
two ways of understanding sacraments. The Roman Catholics uh, have seven sacraments, uh, and uh, I don't know if I can name them off the top of my head, but I could perhaps get, get through most of them. Let's try. Uh, we, no, well, we don't. Let's not do that. Let's not confuse people. Mm. But since the the Protestant Reformation uh, uh, and uh, the understanding of, of of sacraments as being something that Christ Himself has given us as a means of grace. Uh, there are only two that, that Christ uh, officially sanctioned, I think, for my, probably a better word for S- that. Said, do this. Said, do this, yeah. And uh, one is baptism and the other is the Lord's Supper. Um, there are some, though, that would, even within Protestant circles, say that Jesus also told us to wash one another's feet. And, and like the brethren tradition? Correct. They wouldn't call it a sacrament, though, but they would say that it is a command. Um, the reason that it would not be a sacrament, understood as a sacrament, though, is, is that it, it does not point in the same way to salvation mm-hmm. as both baptism and the Lord's Supper do. So, um, yeah. Yeah, I love the definition of a sacrament as a uh, an outward sign of an inward spiritual reality. So all of us, uh, no matter what stage of life we're in, uh, starting when we're just kids, uh, what's going on on the inside? Like, really, we it really helps us to see go through a rite of passage to have to see a something tangible to teach us. Uh, it's really the best way that we learn. Um, so the Lord uh, Jesus gave us two signs of spiritual realities um, that are central to the Christian life, um, and they are uh, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and they are um, they're outward signs. They're, um, they're, phys- they're physical yep. in, in, the, exactly. in the way that so much of the spiritual life isn't. Right. And yet within the physicality of that, we believe that there is a, a Holy Spirit-infused presence yeah. that uh, draws us uh, uh, toward our relationship with the, the Holy Trinity. So there's a, that's the outward grace yep. or, the, or the inward grace, um, but the outward sign. Yeah. Some of my most memorable teachers in seminary and college taught me quite specifically that Jesus is first and foremost, the sacrament of God. So God is invisible. Um, and Jesus is the embodiment, the sign, the grace, the one who's come to us to show us God. And then as Jesus is the one who comes to us, so too, he gives us these extensions of the way in which he gives us the grace and love of, of God towards us. Well, you and I really are theological nerds. <laughs> you guys are a good team. <laughs> I remember maybe a, the a same college professor that you had, Dr. Tim Larson, who's a church history professor, talking about how one of the Christian distinctives is these sacraments are done with ordinary things, right? Like we don't have magical, mystical water. It's just water. We don't have magical, mystical bread. It's just bread that God takes ordinary things and makes them holy and takes ordinary people and makes us holy. And and I think about that. Uh, yeah. It reminds me of the, the church I grew up in. There was uh, uh, Right uh, as the service started, they realized that there was a baptism, and this old uh, Scottish elder uh, grabbed uh, the the baptismal dish and ran into the kitchen saying, you know, where's the holy water? Where's the holy water? And um, the the lady um, in the kitchen didn't know any better, and she, she put the pot on to boil because she figured at least it would be clean nice. water. <laughs> But yeah, but I think the the honest answer is is that it is just water. It's not holy water. Um, it's made holy in the the enacting yes. of the sacrament. In how God uses it, 
Right, but it is not holy in and of itself. And that, that again, is one of those Catholic-Protestant distinctives in that. Yeah, Um, and I think we'll get to the Presbyterian distinctives, but that's one that I would lift up is uh, there are certain things that are different uh, between us and the Catholics, and there are certain things that we hold on to in a way that Baptist and non-denominational folks don't um, when compared to the Catholics. But that is one of the differences that we hold on to as Protestants, which is that there's not special water. There's water that God uses in holy ways. And funny story that I, I think of that is when we were, when Courtney and I were hospice chaplains, or no, when we were hospital chaplains, and someone wanted uh, to be prayed over by with oil, which is a, a biblical request to make. And so we went back to our the chaplain's office and asked for some oil, and both of our uh, leaders there were Catholic, and they, they clearly looked up to a cabinet where they kept the holy oil that had been blessed uh, by the Pope in Rome. And they looked at us being Protestants and said, uh, I don't think we can give you that. And so, but they really wanted to help us. They really wanted to help this person. Um, and so they're like, so all you need is oil, right? And then and we said, yes. And so she went down to the kitchen and got uh, cooking oil yep. from, from the yep. cafeteria. Exactly. And we prayed over it and God used that. And I think yep. to me, I'll never forget that. That's a great example of how God uses something totally common in a holy way. Yeah, exactly. Well, and, and if you go think about the Lord's Supper in the same way, this the, the bread and the wine um, are ordinary things that are that come out of um, our working with them, like you make bread out of wheat um, and, and wine out of grapes, but things that God um, produces that we uh, participate in. Yep. Um, it, it's a, a good picture of, of how we participate with what God's doing in our life uh, through faith. So, yeah. So let's look specifically at our two sacraments. Let's take baptism first. What is baptism? What does it mean? Why do we do it? So baptism is a, a sign and seal uh, of uh, our entry into the Christian life. And, and it is symbolic in, in, in a number of ways, but its primary symbol is washing. It's uh, a big bath from sin. And it's the promise that, uh, that through faith, uh, Jesus has promised to cleanse us from sin. And, and at the beginning of the Christian life, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, we are made clean. Um, we are also um, uh, made clean throughout our lives uh, uh, and, and ultimately are made completely whole and clean um, upon our, our death when we go in uh, to be in the presence of God. So it's not sort of a once and for all, you know, I'm clean and I never sin again, but this sense in which we're promised uh, to be cleansed. There's, there's some other symbols around baptism, though, that are what I'd call secondary, uh, that I think also inform what we mean by baptism. The, we, we talk about um, the going down into the water and coming mm-hmm. up, which, which we don't see as much of here, although we did it with the youth uh, this last uh, spring when uh, we had confirmation and baptisms where we, we lowered them down into a, 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 hot, a little hot tub we had and, and they r- were raised up from the water. But so let me, let me ask you right there, yeah. Jackson, can we dunk people? We can. Because we often sprinkle people and people were right. asking about that. Like, no, no, yep. we're Presbyterian. We just drip the water. Yeah. So what's the deal? It's not the amount of water or the, the mode of baptism. We can sprinkle, we can dunk. Um, it, it's, uh, there, there's, 
the but but the I think the richness of the the primary symbol of washing. Um, when we sprinkle just a little bit of water, that that symbol in some way is less visible than if we use a little more water. So some people have said, why did you get that baby so wet? I said, well, the primary symbol is washing. And uh, they said, well, you could have just sprinkled. I said, yeah, but I want us to remember that that thing. But the, the, the plunging down under the water and coming up is this symbol of your, of dying you're putting to death the, the sin of the old life and then rising to the new life that is given to us in the spirit. And, and so it's, uh, while, while a secondary symbol to the washing, I think it still speaks more richly to, to both the washing and the, the new life that's given to us. And so, um, you know, I, I would love um, to, to do something at some point where we... Um, could do baptisms maybe out in the courtyard, yes. um, whether they're infant or adult. We could stand in the waters and sprinkle babies. But uh, for those who are a little older, we could also um, immerse them. And, uh, um, you know, because we, we do have uh, a great deal of choice. But what we're hindered by in the sanctuary is uh, the fact that we don't have a baptismal tank um, where we could stand in there. But... Um, there, there's ways of, of kind of working that through. Yeah. So I would add um, in that um, the part about the baptism is really how we come into the people of God. Yeah. So it's not just a, yeah, it's not just a, uh, your entry into the right. Christian life. It's also entry into the, the body of the church. Right. And, and our, our culture has often minimized that, that. So we're so individualistic as a culture, and, and, the, and Christianity has really taken that in in some harmful ways where it becomes about me and Jesus. Um, but God, the whole story of Scripture is about how God calls people together as a family, as a body. And in the Old Testament, there was always, there are two basic ways you became part of the people of God, part of the family of God. Uh, one is just by being Jewish. I mean, you're just being from a Jewish family, sort of you're born into it, and ethnic um, genetic even uh, passing on of being the people of God. Um, and then, uh, there's, there's a sign of circumcision as well. Um, right. Where the male Jewish males were, were marked off, um, in a certain way as being part of the family of God. And so in the new Testament, um, what's held onto is that there is a coming into the people of God. And we have a, we have a sign for that, which is called baptism. Um, but the fulfillment of the promises of the old Testament are that anyone who's washed in the grace of Jesus and the blood of Jesus in the water of or the waters of baptism becomes part of the family of God. Right. So the, the question that we sometimes get is why do you baptize babies when they don't yet have a faith? Right. And, and the answer to that is that baptism replaces circumcision as the, the sacrament of entry into the church. And um, you know, in the New Testament, it says that, 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 that this is a richer and fuller covenant. Yeah. And so if the, the old covenant uh, included children... Um, why would the new covenant exclude them yes. until such time as they came to faith? Right. And this is where you know the the, the rationale uh, for baptizing children has some some link with the Old Testament New Testament uh, piece in that. So it, it it also then you know names the fact that the, the baptism is 
is about both grace and faith. And this child being born into a a community of faith with Christian parents certainly has been given great gifts that that are a part of God's leading them to to faith. And so we recognize uh, the primacy of grace in baptism, um, not just um, faith. Yeah, and it's something that as I've, it's a tension between grace and faith that I think everyone in each stage of life feels a certain. We're predisposed to feeling more strongly on one or the other in different stages of life, and I think as I've gotten older, I've appreciated that um, this practice of baptism that says no grace is primary in baptism. God is always before us. God is always moving, bringing us in prior to our, our awareness of it, prior to our faith. That is how we are saved is because God has been moving in us long before we were aware of it, um, is so reassuring because all of us will go through seasons of life where our faith wavers, where uh, we've got questions that are stronger than our awareness of being in relationship with God. And so to be able to point back to say in baptism, no, I've been baptized. God, I was claimed. I was yeah. claimed by God. And in my lowest moments when I can't sustain my faith on my own, the promise of God, the grace of God has still set me apart. Right. Yeah. It's a good, it's a good catch. I think what I find most often is uh, we've got so many families from different traditions here and uh, folks will come in and say, um, I see you baptize, you know, babies. We're not sure if we're, we want to baptize our, our baby or if we want to wait until they have faith because of the tradition we came from. And, and what I always try to link together is, is that grace and faith have to kiss at some point. They have to come together. And in the, the more uh, non-denom or Baptist tradition, their way of recognizing a baby as being part of the, the Christian church would be through dedication, where the family would take these vows that sound remarkably like baptism vows, and and the church would take a vow to support this family, but then no water is included in that. So the child is dedicated to the Lord. Um, But we don't find any evidence for dedication in the New Testament. The only place we find it is in the Old Testament with with Samuel, uh, which is a very specific situation. Um, uh, So the... So the Baptist tradition would say we have to wait until uh, grace touches faith and faith is there, and then we add water, and that person takes the vows and, and are baptized at that point. Um, and so the emphasis uh, is on, on the faith in that instance rather than the grace that has led to that faith. Right. The, the, the place where we land, though, is, is that we put the emphasis on on the grace of God, which ultimately leads to faith, which allows us then to baptize babies and then confirm them on the other end as they have a faith of their own. So those two things are the way of linking the grace and faith, depending on which tradition you come in. I think ours tends to hold water. (laughs) To make a pun. (laughs) So that brings up the question then, because we often have folks who will say, I was baptized as a baby. I don't remember it. I want to make a statement that my faith is real to me now. Will you baptize me again? So how many times do we baptize people and why? Yeah, I, I, I can't baptize someone twice. I'm not allowed to. Um, but, well, not, not only the, the, the church, uh, church law, um, but also from, from an integrity standpoint, the, 
the answer is that the first baptism, whether you remembered it or not, um, was given to you. It was done to you uh, in the sense that uh, uh, it's a gift. Mm-hmm. And, and so uh, your memory of it is not the, the, the thing that matters most. The thing that matters most is that a great gift was given to you. And that God remembers it. And that God remembers it, right? yes, thankfully. And, and even when we don't remember God, God remembers us. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, yeah, we bump into that one quite a bit, and, and people sometimes are a little upset. What do you mean you can't baptize me? I'm like, well, it, you know, because now, I, I, now that I have come to faith, I want an experience. And uh, so I, I, we, what, what we've tried to do, though, is uh, to make confirmation or the affirmation of faith um, a rich experience as well, because that is something that I, f- I feel is, is a, a frustration from my end, is that you have someone who has been baptized as a child, comes to faith maybe as a young adult, and then says, wow, I can't be baptized. Well, all my friends who came to faith recently can. Um, you know, how do I make this rich? And so we've, we've wrestled to try to uh, find uh, a rite of passage in that, in that way that, that also feels rich. And, and meaningful and allows people to lay claim in a, in a richer symbolic way. Um, yeah, I, um, in confirmation, what we did this la- last time was those who were being confirmed who had been baptized renewed their baptismal vows in the waters of baptism. And we didn't rebaptize them, but we... We are, had them kneel. We had the them water. kneel in the water, and then, they, and then they said the same vows that, that those who were being baptized, and that makes the link between baptism and confirmation. Right. Uh, much tighter, and and we haven't talked about it, but I wonder whether there's a confirmation, but whether there's an opportunity for people to renew their baptismal vows, whether or not they're going through confirmation or not. That's a great idea. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love the I love those links, and I think that especially for for our young adults and for folks who were baptized and maybe walked away from the faith and have come back, I think many of them are not looking for an experience as much as they are looking for a way to publicly proclaim these right. things, right? Like some sort of a, of a rite of passage, like you said, where they're able to say, you know, this happened to me before. I know God was there, but I'm claiming it anew right now. And, yep. and I think those are great conversations to have. I'm all for us getting a, a little swimming pool out on the patio and we can, we can set this up. Um, so it, this also brings up the question, because many people who, who come and worship here were baptized as babies, but they were baptized in a different denomination. Does, right. that, does that count? Is that valid in the Presbyterian church, or do they need a Presbyterian baptism? No, they, we would recognize their, their baptism as a Christian baptism, um, as all um, Christian churches would recognize one another. So Catholic baptism is a Christian baptism, Absolutely. and Methodist and Baptist and Anglican. Um, our Christian baptisms. Where we would find difficulty, though, is if someone came from uh, a non-Trinitarian yes. um, place, like Jehovah's Witness or Mormon, um, that are not baptized in the uh, in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, as were commanded by Christ. That would not be a Christian baptism, um, and that in that case, we would definitely explore uh, baptism into into the Christian yep. into the Christian baptism. The fact that we acknowledge other Christian baptisms is a sign of our unity as the Christian church, that even though we are separated into various denominations, and that that's something to grieve, mm-hmm. uh, because God really does call one church together with as the body of Christ. But, the bapti- but baptism still is a sign that you go 
to various kinds of Christian churches. And the fact that the Catholics will not rebaptize, they acknowledge our baptism as valid as a Christian baptism is a, is a wonderful thing. And, uh, of course, that leads us into the Lord's Supper, which... Which is grievous. I mean, it's very which, sad which is, they which, don't. Which, yeah. is, which, is the, which is where the Roman Catholics do not recognize do not. Yep. Uh, Protestants at, at the Lord's Supper, right. which um, speaks to the disunity of the yep. church in that way. Um, and, and I've had some, I think there's some openness to, to that among um, some of the Roman Catholics, even in the, the hierarchy, uh, that there's a place here somewhere for Protestants um, uh, in this. But it's still at this point, church law from their end is that a, a Catholic, only baptized Catholics totally. can come forward for communion. So we're recognized as Christians, but we're not allowed to grow. <laughs> Um, but in that, in the way that we practice confirmation, and, and I think it's a significant part of our DNA, is that we we are Presbyterian, but we're under no illusion that like that this is the only way. Um, there are things that we think are uh, strong, you know, strong about our tradition, and we stand with them. Um, but there are some Christians that seem to think that the way the way that we go about being Christian is by casting suspicion on every other tradition of being Christian, um, which really divides the church. And, and the way that we practice baptism, I think, acknowledges that Christ is present in other denominations too. Sure. Um, and there's, there's what I'd call essentials right. of the Christian faith, and then there are distinctives. Right. And uh, as long as we hold to the essentials right. together, uh, we have fellowship uh, through our Lord. Uh, the distinctives, though, like you know, infant baptism, mm -hmm. um, uh, you know, the mode of baptism, those kinds of things are less important, um, but they are things that make us us. Uh, so. So when we talk about the only way, it's Jesus is the only way, and Presbyterians have an expression of that, Baptists have an expression of that, Catholics have an expression yeah. of that, and there are the things essential that make us is Jesus distinct. is the way, right? Yeah, Jesus is the path to salvation, yeah. and the distinctive is debts and debtors. And Women pastors, yeah, things or not. like that. Yeah, yeah. those are distinct, for example. Dis those are distinctives, but yeah. not. Um, uh, but they don't uh, get in the way of us looking at each other and saying, "Yes, you are uh, a Christian brother and sister." Yeah, or at least they shouldn't. Every right. so, every so often, you, you get a bit of rigidity around a particular issue that uh, that is a distinctive, but gets treated like an essential. Right, and that's when we need to you know, sit down and look each other in the eye and remind each other of what's most important again. Yeah. And, and I think those are good conversations to have. You know, I meet people out in the community at the park when I'm out with the kids and, and they'll hear that I'm a pastor and they're like, oh, well, I go to St. Killian's or I go to Saddleback and there's kind of this, I'm sorry. And I'm like, no, 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 like you're going to church. Like we are on the same team. You know, I'm, yeah. I'm Presbyterian for a reason and I would love to tell you why, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing yeah. is following Jesus. You know, right. I'm, a, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a friend. I'm a wife. I'm a mother. I'm a Presbyterian and that's very important, but that's like eighth in the list, right? The, the Christianity is the top of the list and, and walking with Jesus. And, and those are good conversations to have. Um, so tell me a little bit about what the Lord's Supper is. What's happening there? We're done with the water. Now we're on to the wine. Yeah, so uh, like Jackson said on baptism, there are some primary symbol meanings to the Lord's Supper, and there are some secondary ones. Um, uh, just to continue the conversation about baptism and the being a member. What? <laughs> I'm just laughing. We could talk on baptism. We the whole could, time. We could. Six hours. But uh, <laughs> one of the reasons that I feel strongly 
about standing with the wider church that we don't baptize more than once is because the sacraments are ordered, baptism and the Lord's Supper are ordered as baptism is the way you come in uh, to the family of God. And the Lord's Supper is the renewal, the, the thing that we do over and over again as we grow. And, you know, if we're looking for something to do publicly to participate in the family of God, we have something like that. And it's called the Lord's Supper, which is why we do it every month. Right. And, some tradi- and some congregations do it every week. You know, it is the, it is the renewal of our, of our identity with Christ that we do so regularly. Um, yeah, it's, it's a, but at its heart, the, the primary symbol is a meal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and just like a, taking a bath for baptism, we all understand it. We, we all understand our need to eat. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that if we're not nourished, we lose uh, energy and, and so, you know, the, the means through which to, to move and do the things that we're supposed to do. And so this symbol, you know, reminds us that we have to draw uh, from Christ himself as the means of our nourishment. Yeah. Um, in the spiritual life to be able to, to, to make progress in the progress may not be the right word, but to, to move forward by faith in the Christian life. And it it has its roots in the, uh, the Passover meal, um, that the, uh, that's in Israel's tradition that they would, they would celebrate the, uh, the, the festival of Passover to celebrate and remember their delivery, their exodus from Egypt. Um, and Jesus in the first Lord's Supper is, is celebrating a Passover meal and he reappropriates parts of it to draw, to recenter that Passover tradition around himself, that just as God delivered the people of Israel from Egypt um, through the shedding of blood, so too are we saved and delivered from the power of sin and death uh, through the shedding of his blood. Right. Um, and so in the sharing of the meal, it's not ju- it is a meal, but there's also a retelling of the story that tells us um, it's just a little gospel presentation of uh, this body, this blood was given for you, um, and we are saved through it. And so it's a reminder of the gospel, and it's also an invitation to respond. Here's the story. Here's the Savior. Come and respond and partake. Take it into you and claim it as your story as well. Yeah, it's, and again, like, like baptism, uh where people often will come on the individualist level of it's just me and Jesus in this moment. There is that, um, as there is in baptism, but there's also a corporate um, church side to the Lord's Supper as well. If you come to the Lord's Supper and you are holding on to, you know, hate or envy for your brother and sister at the church, you... um, uh, Jesus says that if, if, you, if you've sinned against your brother, you go take your gift and, and make amends and then come to the altar. There's a sense in which we are called um, when we come to the table to, to look at one another and yes. say, you know, are we right with one another? Um, and and if, if we are not, uh, this sacrament calls us to, to get right with one another um, because Christ has... Uh, called us uh, to walk together as a body, a unified body. And so it, it calls us to unity. It calls us, I, I love how when we pass the bread or we share the bread, we, we, you know, we, we hand it to one another as an act of sharing. And it calls us to share with one another. So there's a potentially an economic element to it mm-hmm. as well, or a, a justice element yeah. in that sense that uh, we have to walk with one another um, 
openly, yeah. maybe more openly than than our Western individualist society um, makes us comfortable in doing. Yeah, and I think both of our services, the Sanctuary Service and the Awake Service, do that in different ways. But there's always a uh, in the sanctuary, you turn and you pass it to your neighbor and say, this is the body of Christ given for you. This is the blood of Christ shed for you. And in that, you're turning to one another. And in the awake service, we get up and we go and we go back to our seats. And in both uh, both of those practices, there's a seeing of the body of Christ, seeing one another, taking it together, uh, that takes the, the focus off of the pastors up front leading and more, we are the body of Christ here participating in the meal that God's given to us. Yeah, our life together. Right. Not just uh, my life. Right. Yeah. So it calls us to Christ, and it calls us to one another, yep. uh, again, like baptism does. Jackson, I know you've you've told me the story of watching the tray of bread pass you by as a kid, and, and your parents saying, like, not yet, not yet. And, and I remember that same experience, and in part just being very frustrated because I was you know, four or five years old. And I was like, I'm hungry. That's a snack. Why are you making me sit out? And, um, which just brings up the question, what, at what age should kids start taking communion? It's, you know, they've been baptized as babies here, or maybe they haven't been baptized yet, but they've been coming for a while. Um, how do we decide and who decides when kids can start receiving the Lord's supper? We have, uh, a a great deal of latitude in that, but Mm -hmm. the, the main concern is that the scripture tells us is that a person should be able to discern the body and blood of Christ. And what that means is a, is a little, um, needs some unpacking. It doesn't necessarily just apply to age. Um, it applies to people's walk in life and whether they understand what they're doing. Um, but, a, a little child can understand that, um, that the, the bread and the cup mean more than just um, food and drink, that they, that, they, that they are doing something in their relationship to Jesus. So I, I think that when, when it passes us by as little ones, mm-hmm. it also is saying something, that, that it's saying, um, I don't yet have the ability to discern, but it might also be saying is, is well, you're not welcome which is a message we don't want to send. So we uh, encourage uh, parents and, and, and children to have conversations. Uh, we um, have a, a, a workshop that parents can come to that helps the, their children to understand what is happening at the Lord's Supper so that they're prepared. And, uh, and we want uh, it to be a decision that each family makes together uh, as to how, uh, how, how much discernment has happened. And uh, I do think that you can grow in your knowledge of what the Lord's Supper is throughout your life. Uh, in fact, I think all of us here would say that there are times when we're taking the Lord's Supper where some part of that meal strikes us in a, a fresh way that, that we wish we had thought of earlier. And uh, children, I think, are always making those kinds of connections. So, uh, yeah, I think that uh, we we definitely, uh, but we don't want people just you know assuming that uh, if they come forward that their child will just take it without any conversation. So, we, um, uh, but yeah, yeah. So um, I think there's always a tension in the Lord's Supper between something becoming rote and too familiar and therefore not wholly meaningful 
but on the other end, there can be the temptation of it doesn't take on um, that when we don't include our kids that we we can drop the meaning of this is this is the entire body of Christ together can drop out as well. Um, and that's one of the things that we're trying to respond to uh, in including our kids across the ages more regularly in worship is uh, we're seeing a lot of our kids graduate um, and go to college and um, not really go to church and not really walk with the Lord. And, and it's caused us as pastors and as a church to say, you know, what are the ways in which we can include and incorporate and train up our kids from the earliest of ages um, to not, to recognize that when we are all together in worship, that is the fullest expression of the body of Christ. Um, and how can we be together more often? Um, and the Lord's Supper is a natural place for us to celebrate that together across all the ages. And it's an easy way for kids. Uh, they don't, they couldn't write a seminary paper on the Lord's Supper, but they can know that Jesus asked us to do this. And in this, we remember the fact that he gave his body and he gave his blood for our forgiveness. And from early ages, I mean, our kids have been, you know, they know who Jesus is and they love him. And they know that in our house, we love him and that he loves us. And uh, that therefore, when Jesus offers us bread, we get to take it. Mm-hmm. Um, and in ways that my words couldn't incorporate my kids into the faith, them coming with everyone else to the table of Christ teaches them something that right. they can understand. And again, there's a little bit of a link there is that uh, it is uh, baptized children Yep. that should come to the yes. table. Yep. And that's where you can end up with a sticky wicket mm-hmm. with a family that um, wants to wait for baptism. Mm-hmm. Technically, uh, their child should not come forward for communion until they've been baptized. That said, um, we certainly... Uh, we would never get in front of somebody. We would never get in... No. Right, right. <laughs> but but the, uh, theologically... Baptism is is the entry point to the life of faith and communion or the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist. We use, could use those words interchangeably, yes. but the Lord's Supper is the is the ongoing uh, thing that uh, once we've entered the gate, this is how the Christ, Christian life must must be lived, yep. is always remembering what Jesus has done for us. Yep. And starting in February, we're going to be welcoming our kids, first grade and up, back into the service for communion. And it's triggering some of these conversations. Some parents have come to us and said, our kids aren't baptized. What does that mean? Some parents have come and said, you know, our kids don't really understand what it means. Will you teach us? And, you know, I'm grateful that we're having these conversations because I think sometimes we just... We do things and we don't talk about why or where it comes from. And um, yeah, but there is no there is no age limit on communion, either on the young end or on the on the older end. Right. You don't you don't hit one hundred and two and then no more. Um, And I love that we will bring Wilson into the service with us and he's three and he will look at that table and he'll go, I'm going to have some of that, Mm -hmm. you know, and and it's body of Christ broken for you. And and things are going on with him and right. his faith and he is growing into it. And, and similarly with Lincoln, um, he was baptized and his big faith decision came when he was about five years old. We were on the college young adults camp out and we served communion at the camp out to those college students. And Steve Wright, who's a wonderful Presbyterian pastor and friend was there leading. And 
Lincoln is just watching these college students and he's pondering all this. And he came home and he, on his own, got his children's Bible out, opened it to the story of the Lord's Supper and had all these questions. You know, are those kids, are those big kids following Jesus? Was Mr. Steve following Jesus? What does this mean? And that was his entry in making his first decision to follow Jesus, um, in part because he was welcome to the table with them. And and I think about that. Yeah, there's something about being welcome to the table that uh, when we when we fence it off uh, in some ways and don't let people come to that uh, discernment themselves, but we place the barrier in front of them, we miss something yeah. that uh, could be very important for, for especially for children. Yeah. There's, there's also, there's a founding member of our church, and I won't give his name because it's his story to tell, but he became a Christian after visiting a church, coming forward for communion, not knowing much of anything, taking communion, and that was the moment that Jesus met him. And yeah. that was the moment he went to the pastor after and said, what do I do next? And the pastor was like, let's talk yeah. baptism. You know, sometimes there's a yeah. God yeah. is at work and... That's, that sounds like a good pastor. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's like, yeah. Not how dare you, but... The, the pastor trying to get the cart back behind the horse, yeah, right? Yeah, that God met him there. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I think about that story too. So I, I think all that to say, we have Presbyterian distinctives and we have right. theology and we have polity, um, but we also serve the God who sees each person and each person's story. And we want to walk with families in that and walk with individuals in that and, and help people to make these, make these faith commitments. Um, and also just know that, that there is grace and God is in and through these ordinary, holy, sacred things. What else you guys got? Theology 101 with Jackson and Daryl. How should we wrap this one up? I guess my last point on the Lord's Supper was that uh, what <laughs> I was just thinking I'm I'm ready to wrap up. You're good. Okay, <laughs> was um, I I grew up in a tradition where the Lord's Supper was always very somber. Mm, um, yeah, and there was always this sort of implied maybe you're doing it wrong and condemning yourself right now. And then I went to an Anglican church in college and. Um, it was the first time I was ever in a, in a church that was, communion was a, a time of rejoicing. Um, that's, that, that's a good way to end because it is a meal that reminds us that we will celebrate with Christ around right. the great banquet table yeah. in heaven. Yeah. And We're practicing for heaven. We are. And, yeah. and it, it is so often somber, I think because we're called to remember the body and blood of Christ. It's hard to look at the cross and say celebration. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he died for us, but it points ahead yeah. too. And, and I, I wonder sometimes how we could refocus um, a communion service around the celebratory aspect yeah. of that. Because it's hard to do yep. with the, just the, what the elements point to. Yeah, but kids help, right? I mean, like uh, it's hard not to celebrate when there's a four-year-old coming back dancing because they took the body of Christ. I mean, that's beautiful. Yeah. And we could use more of that as adults. I mean, there's something great there. There is. Yeah. So maybe we should have trumpets or drums or something, but um, we'll, we'll carve that out someday. Thank you guys so much for taking the time. It was great to chat and good times. appreciate the wisdom and the insights and the metaphors and the theology behind it. So thank you for being here. Thanks for having us. It was wonderful. Thanks, Courtney. Have a story you'd like to share at the PCOM podcast? Contact Pastor Courtney Ellis at Courtney.ellis 
at mypecom.com. The Pecom Podcast is a production of Presbyterian Church of the Master. Our web guru is Kevin Reimers. Original music by Jeff Given. Join us Sundays for worship at 9 and 10.45 a.m., where we tell the stories of what God is doing in our midst. Thank you.